Welcome to today's episode of the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. Want to increase your financial IQ with today's episode, which is uh, a mid-year economic update. I thought, given the success we had doing this in January at the beginning of 2023, that I would bring back a great guest, Jordan Jackson, global market strategist at JP Morgan. As I said in the January version of this, uh, JP Morgan, one of the absolute first class of financial organizations in the country, probably the world. Uh, and the conversation with Jordan in January was very instructive. I got a lot of information, got wonderful feedback from uh, my clients and listeners. So uh, I thought it would be good now that we're halfway through the year, which as a side note, uh, the year seems to just be flying by for me. I don't know if you feel the same way, but um, to see kind of where we find ourselves at the midpoint of the year, what JP Morgan's outlook is as expressed by Jordan. Uh, Jordan, thanks for uh, joining me today. I'm really excited about this discussion we're about to have. Chris, thank you for having me back and I'm um, looking forward to it. So I thought we could start with one of the, the, the key topics which is the idea of a recession. And it seems like we've been talking about the imminent recession for like a year and a half now. It always seems to be just on the horizon, yet we don't seem to get there, although at least not get there yet. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, the position of J.P. Morgan as it pertains to whether we're going to go into a recession or not, how bad it might be, how uh, short or long it might be. Can you provide a little color about the recession topic? Sure, uh, absolutely. And uh, I can't have a client meeting without the dreaded R word. Uh, yeah. up, certainly. Um, maybe if we could use the guide here and we could jump to uh, guide slide 19 to talk a little bit about recession. Um, I, I'd argue that the recession call, and to be candid, that the, we've been calling for a recession, I think, since the beginning of the year. Uh, generally speaking, I think back then, um, we had expected this recession to materialize sometime in the third quarter, and now it appears that the recession has sort of been pushed back, uh, if you will, maybe a quarter or two. So we are still in a uh, recession camp, that a recession is likely to materialize. Many of the leading indicators uh, that we like to watch. And when I say leading indicators, those are um, financial indicators, things like the yield curve, and we can sort of get into that to so the spread between a two-year bond and a 10-year bond. Um, that sig typically signals a recession. Uh, other leading indicators by way of survey data, um, so like uh, purchasing managers indices, so PMIs, um, that signals uh, a bit of weakness uh, is, is likely to be ahead. Um, but how do we know the recession is, is, is here? Um, this slide is a great slide that, 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 that we can have that conversation. Um, these are the six key indicators that the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER, uses to determine whether the economy is expanding or whether it's contracting. Um, so you you've got uh, real personal income, uh, uh, labor markets as measured by the non-farm and the establishment survey, 
real consumer and real institutional spending, uh, and industrial production. Um, now, we like heat maps because we think it's a great way to visualize some of this data. So red being bad, green being good. Um, you can see over time, obviously, the pandemic recession, March and April of 2020, that deep red, the sharpest and deepest recession that we've had uh, on record, followed by the very strong V-shaped recovery, the bright green and all these uh, six uh, indicators. Uh, and now as you move to today, uh, roughly about four out of those six, which we show on the on the bottom half of this page, four of these six indicators are still in expansionary mode uh, over the last six months. I mean, we use the six month time frame because many people will assign two quarters, right? Six months of negative GDP growth as a sign of a recession. Um, and so we look over the past six months um, and you can see again that four out of the six are still in contract, uh, still in expansion mode. So we're not in the recession yet, uh, but we are, are seeing signs that uh, under the weight of higher interest rates, um, the challenges with, with inflation, uh, that um, uh, the economy is likely to enter into a, a, a recession. Um, and so that that's still in our camp. We think that recession materializes sometime in the fourth quarter uh, of this year. Um, and the, it could very well be somewhat prolonged, uh, lasting three to four quarters, because we also think if a recession does happen, uh, it'll be a fairly shallow one, not, not very deep and sharp like the pandemic recession. That's good. I mean, my, my, my take on things is that the, the risk of a deep recession seems to have been reduced dramatically given the success that the Federal Reserve has had in bringing down inflation. It's down about 55% on the CPI over the last year. So, you know, that, that kind of makes sense to me. It's not all negative, though. Uh, you know, there is the specter of the recession, which, as I said at the top of the show, has been with us for a while. But we do have some aspects of the economy that have remained quite strong. Can we talk about some of them? Maybe talking about first the strong job market and also cover the relatively healthy consumer spending. Start with job market. Sure. Um, so for the job market, uh, we can actually jump to uh, slide 30 uh, of, of, of the guide here. Um, and this is the more holistic picture, I'd argue. I'm just looking at the unemployment rate, um, which is, I think, the kind of the broadest, uh, most well, most tra uh, highly tracked measure of, of broader labor market tightness. Um, that's in gray. Uh, and then you have wage growth uh, for, for private production and non-supervisory workers. Uh, now, we use this series. It may not match up the headline net, uh, number. It's about 70% of the U.S. workforce, but they are typical clocking and clock out workers. So we think it's a cleaner measure um, on how to uh, on how to track wage growth. Um, and you can see the unemployment rate uh, as of May, 3.7% uh, sitting at multi-decade lows. And then when you look at the wage growth, certainly wage growth has started to come down a, a little bit, but it's still elevated versus that long run average of about 4%. We're running at about 5% year over year uh, in, in wage growth. So we're in this weird uh, labor market dynamic in which there's still this excess demand for labor that it's yet to, that has yet to fully work itself out. Um, one of the metrics that uh, Chairman Powell and the Fed are closely watching are the number of job openings to the job openings in the economy relative to the number of unemployed people, um, and that number is still sitting at about 1.6 times job openings per unemployed persons, and so. Um, you know, there's there's effectively more jobs than there are people who are willing and able to work. Um, and that is creating this, this again, this excess demand for labor that I think is keeping wages 
uh, relatively elevated. And, and why is that the case? Well, um, if, if companies can't find that next employee, then they're likely going to have to try to pay up to either try to attract that additional employee or pay up in order to keep the employees that they already have uh, employed on their books and continue to produce uh, for the company. And so that's why you get this sort of stickiness in wage growth. And that wage number probably will continue to move lower, but it'll be gradually as this excess demand for labor continues to work itself out. Um, so we're still very much in a tight labor market. Um, one of the reasons why we feel confident that we haven't had the recession uh, is because you've never had a recession uh, and wage and, 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 and the unemployment uh, rate uh, has fallen. Uh, and we've continued to see the unemployment rate come down, remain at very, very low levels. Um, it is once we start to see that unemployment rate tick up, probably associated with the decline uh, in wages, uh, that will, that, that we, that will, that'll be a clear sign that the recession is materializing. How surprising is it based on history that the Fed is be able to bring inflation down in June of 22, it was running, I think, 9.1%, certainly above nine. And in June of this year, it's at four, still has a ways to go, but a lot of progress has been made. How surprising is it that they've been able to accomplish so much bringing down inflation while still having a very healthy job market? It's pretty unusual historically, no? Uh, it, it is pretty unusual, um, but I don't think it's necessarily a heroic efforts done by the Federal Reserve, uh, to be quite honest, that's allowed inflation to come down. I mean, I think the bigger disinflationary aspects have come from the energy and the food components uh, when looking at headline headline inflation. Right. And actually, uh, if we jump to slide 33, this is a new page uh, in our guide that we're, we're really excited about, um, but it, it highlights some of the numbers that you just referenced. Um, so the left-hand side chart, you can see the contributors to inflation. Um, uh, as, as Chris mentioned, you've got that 9.1% year-over-year in June of 2020. That was that peak rate. Um, and now you can very you can identify right where uh, that disinflation is happening. The green component, um, uh, which was a big component of the inflation, about a third uh, about a year ago, that's now in disinflation. So energy coming down pretty significantly. That's allowed for the headline inflation number uh, to come down. Uh, also, a food, uh, you can look at food at home. That was a big component uh, that started to, to shrink a little bit. So all of this has really impacted the headline number. But, the, but, but what the Fed, you could argue, actually controls through interest rate policy uh, is core inflation um, or the demand side uh, of inflation. And that's what we show on the right-hand side, the components. You can see... While the headline inflation has come down pretty dramatically, core inflation actually hasn't come down all that much. I mean, it's, it's down pretty meaningfully, uh, peaking at 6.6% in September of last year. Now we're down at about a 5%. Uh, but take a look at what's contributing, interestingly, to this stickiness in, in inflation that the Fed seems to be obsessed with. Um, and the core uh, inflation measure that we're looking at actually excludes shelter, uh, which is a which is a, which is a large component, but it's a, it's a fairly sticky component. Um, and and what you can see is that red bar, transportation services x airfares, has grown. It's continued to be a larger and larger share uh, of that core inflation number. Now, what's in transportation services? Um, it's car insurance, it's auto body repairs, and it's lease payments on cars. Now, what's really interesting, um, auto body repairs, um, this is a function of higher car prices, 
Um, and so it's now it's more costly to, 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 to fix a, a car. Also labor dynamics. We talked about this uh, excess demand for labor. There's just not enough mechanics in the auto body shop to fix to get these cars fixed in a reasonable time frame. So the cost of, of fixing a car uh, has gotten a lot expensive and that price continues to increase. What's interesting, interestingly, the Fed almost seems to be shooting themselves in the foot here by way of car insurance, which is that other uh, one other component, um, and then lease payments. Both of those uh, are, are tied to interest rates, which is what the Fed controls. Right. So the fact that the Fed is is raising interest rates, and we can talk yeah. about how they're talking about, you know, maybe raising rates another two times, uh, they're almost contributing right to the inflationary pressures in this core CPI X shelter inflation that they're so obsessed with. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the Fed is doing the best that they can with, with the tools that they have at their disposal. Um, but uh, I, I foresee this environment where headline inflation can kind of continue to come down. But core inflation, this, this measure of inflation that they're particularly worried about, maybe remains a little bit stickier than, uh, than, than they'd like. Very well said. And uh, touch on um, uh, the healthy consumer story. And I think it's related to this healthy job market. You know, when people are employed, they tend to be more confident and uh, more likely to spend. But uh, the consumer, the demise of the consumer is another thing, sort of like the recession that's often talked about, rarely seen all the time over my career. It's uh, the consumer, if they stop spending, we're going to have trouble. If they, but the consumer rarely stops spending. Can you talk a little bit about where we are with consumer spending and how that might be helping the economy. And perhaps you guys have a different perspective. I put fairly optimistic spin on that, but uh, tell me uh, about consumer spending. Sure, well, uh, there's uh, there's this old adage, uh, a, a, a penny earned is a penny saved. Well, for the American consumer, a penny earned is a penny spent. So, so yeah. you're exactly right. If you if if Americans are employed and they're receiving an income, uh, they will spend it. We are we are a spending uh, economy. But if we jump to slide uh, 25 uh, in our deck here, um, we can kind of take a look at the state of I think consumers, and and I'd argue that consumers are bending but not yet breaking. Um, if you look at the top right hand side chart, there's there's been a lot of literature put out coming out of the pandemic of all this excess money that consumers had amassed over the pandemic, uh, just given uh, added unemployment benefits, uh, one-time checks that went out to millions of Americans. So uh, we were, we were, we've been trying to track uh, that excess savings relative to the, the, the pre-pandemic trend uh, in, in, in overall savings. And, and that blue shaded region tries to capture that, that hump, right? That, that pop in overall savings numbers. And, and you can see, that uh, 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 that number has come down. Consumers have been drawing down on that excess savings. Now, encouragingly, if you look at the bottom right-hand side, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the nominal increase in, in, in revolving credit card debt. Um, and certainly it, it is concerning uh, right now where consumers are sitting on about $1.3 trillion uh, in revolving credit card debt. But I think what's really important is you should look at that number relative to disposable income. Yes, people can increase credit, but if their incomes are rising as well, then that's actually a healthy increase in credit usage. And if you look at the bottom right bottom right hand side chart, we show revolving credit card debt as a percentage of income. Now, interestingly, prior to the global financial crisis in 2008, 
consumers were running at about a 9% uh, credit to credit to income ratio. Um, that yeah. number continued to move down uh, coming out of the financial crisis. I think um, consumers got a little bit more conservative um, after after 08 and 09. Uh, right. Then you had that big increase uh, in, 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 in incomes generated by fiscal support. Uh, you saw that big decline, right? Uh, right, right at the pandemic uh, in, in early 2020 of, of, of credit. So people use that extra income to pay down credit cards. Obviously, that number has started to rise, but I think this is more of a normalization uh, in credit card usage relative to income, not necessarily consumers coming uh, overextended. Um, and so I think when I when you, when you sort of paint the picture more broadly, savings are down, credit card usage is up. Uh, we are seeing consumers starting to come under a little bit more pressure. Uh, when we look at um, you know things like uh, delinquency rates, they have started to move up modestly. And if you actually jump forward one slide to slide 24, the bottom right hand side chart looks at 30 30 day delinquencies across autos, auto loans, credit cards, and student loans. Again, as of late, you can see that modest move higher, but certainly not in in in, in delinquencies where we were uh, coming into the financial crisis. So again, I think consumers are bending, not yet breaking. The tight labor market, higher wage growth. Um, if we're in an environment where inflation is coming down, which we talked about, and wages remain fairly firm, we could be in an environment in which real wage growth turns positive. And that tends to be very, very healthy for, for broader consumption. Um, and given consumption uh, accounts for about two thirds of overall economic activity, you know, the consumer can kind of hum along here potentially, uh, even if the broader economy, other aspects of the economy start to come under some pressure. In summary, Jordan, you know, looking at this data and you might just be listening to what we're talking about. It seems like, you know, from historic and let's just say since 2000, all right, you know, uh, maybe the numbers are not as great as they were um, during the great, um, the pandemic, I should say, where savings rates spiked and, you know, but still, I mean, it's, the consumer is not really overstretched and none of this really jumps out to be the thing that drives us over the edge. It, it seems like it's well within the norms. Is that a good summary? I think that's totally fair. And, you know, the reality is we're getting a lot of questions of, and this almost reverts right back to where we started the conversation on the recession call. Well, if the consumer kind of hangs in there, where's the recession going to come from? Um, and I, I draw parallels to the early 2000s uh, in which you had a more business-driven recession. You know, uh, uh, corporate CapEx really came down after you saw a lot of uh, research and development spending leading up to the tech bubble. Um, and so you saw a CapEx, which is a which is about a 15% chunk of the overall economy, really come down. That drove the very modest recession of the early 2000s. Interestingly enough, real personal consumption remained positive through that recession. And the unemployment rate only moved up to a modest uh, peak 6.3% in June of 2023. Um, and we're, we're talking about, you know, again, still very low levels of unemployment today, maybe a modest move higher in, in, in the unemployment rate uh, in a recessionary environment. So, you know, we, we've been in, in, in recessions in which it's, again, it's been more business capital spending uh, uh, driven recessions, whereas the consumer, you know, kind of hangs in there. I travel across the country and Whenever I pose a question to the audience and say, how many folks have a vacation planned over the next six months, about 80% of the room, the hands go up. Um, and, I, and for me, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a sign that again, consumers are, you know, again, sort of, sort of still hanging in there. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I know some 
talking heads out there. Um, you know, they think that because there's been an uptick and uptick in some of these consumer category and it means the uh end of times I'm, I'm half joking here um but it just seems like like i said before uh, that we're well within the norms it seems to me another key part of this is um corporate earnings um u.s corporations it seems to me continue to be dynamic and have really negotiated through these difficult couple of years with a lot of changes, high number of challenges, but they seem to be in good shape. Um, can you talk a little bit about JP Morgan's outlook on that front? Sure. Um, we, we like to use slide eight in our presentation to, to talk about the corporate earnings backdrop. Um, so yes, corporate earnings have been, I'd argue, um, you know, a bit more resilient uh, than what we than, than, than what we initially anticipated. So um, the left-hand side chart just shows index earnings for the S&P 500, so the 500 largest companies in the U.S. Um, and then the right-hand side chart breaks down that earnings per share growth by margins, uh, revenues, top-line revenue growth, uh, and share count, which is a fancy way of saying buybacks. Now, one of the challenges that we have in our outlook, uh, if we're talking about a recession, uh, albeit a, a modest recession, you know, earnings tend to be hypercyclical, meaning that they move to a greater than greater degree, either up or down relative to the economy. And so if we're talking about slower growth, uh, then in our view, that would suggest that earnings should contract over the course of 2023, and in particular over the next the next 12 month time horizon. Uh, but what's, what's interesting, uh, going back to that left hand side chart, those, those blue bars uh, on the right-hand side show the next three years projected earnings per share growth from bottoms-up analysts. So what analysts expect earnings to do over the next three years. Um, now, you can see that modest contraction, about 5% contraction earnings in 2022. Um, again, that's you know sort of a reflection of, of, of margins contracting, right? Um, with higher costs, higher uh, supply chain issues, uh, all that really impacting margins. But what I'm concerned about is those three bars, the dramatic step up uh, in those three bars uh, over the next three years. And uh, what that would suggest is 2024, uh, markets are anticipating close to $250 earnings for the S&P 500. Um, that would suggest a blend, if we're talking about a blend, so half of 2023 and then the first half of 2024, that would suggest a dollar earnings of about $235 um, over the next 12 months. And we think that's just too optimistic, right? Right. That's effectively calling for about 11% earnings growth, a little bit higher than 11% earnings growth over the right. next months, um, and then about 11% earnings growth for the calendar year 2023. Um, again, if earnings are hypercyclical and we're expecting this recession or, or a slowdown in growth, we think earnings need to be roughly flat to, 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 to slightly negative this year. Um, and that's, 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 you know, a bit out of consensus, we've actually seen earnings being revised higher over the month of June in terms of forward earnings expectations, but that's where we're a little bit more conservative, uh, we'd argue, than the broader market. Yeah, so it seems like there's optimism, and I think it ties into what we talked about earlier. Earnings estimates are reflecting the idea that uh, the Fed is going to be successful and engineer a soft landing where they are able to, and again, some of this is able to get inflation under control without 
undue damage to the economy and sort of landing the economy safely. Um, it seems like the thesis that the Fed would engineer a soft landing, and I, I did a Simply Financial podcast episode on this not too long ago, Jordan, and it was titled Dreaming of a Soft Landing. Uh, but is it fair to say that some of this optimism is tied to the idea that the Fed's going to be able to engineer a soft landing? Uh, absolutely. Um, the idea that uh, growth is going to stay intact. Uh, consumers, as we talked about, uh, they bend, but they don't break. So they continue to spend. Um, that tends to be positive and good for, for corporate profits. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the, the improvement in supply chains means that the cost on companies uh, comes down as well. Um, so right. stabilization in oil prices, right, that feeds through to, uh, to, to, to margins and costs uh, as well. Um, and then also the last point that I would make is, is uh, you know, technology is now, you know, 30% of the index, but also 30% of the earnings. Um, and this AI craze in which, you know, certain companies are, have announced that um, they're going to be, uh, you know, huge beneficiaries of this pickup in AI and, 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 and chip development and semiconductors and, and, and all that, um, potentially all that earnings growth materializing in 2024 and markets are looking ahead, right? They're looking ahead yeah. towards, you know, that, that positive tech earnings um, really coming through uh, in, in 2024. Uh, and I think they're pulling forward some of those returns, which is why you've had the market, you know, really price in. Um, for at least over the first five months of the year, uh, a small subset of names, companies that were really driving the, the index higher. Now you've got a bit of a broadening out uh, in terms of a performance and, and other sectors participating in that performance over the month of June. Um, but I think all the things that we've, we've highlighted, uh, you know, a soft landing, um, uh, earnings tied to artificial intelligence uh, materializing in 2024, uh, less margin pressure hitting companies um, next year, and all that, I think, helping to, to, to kind of boost some of these earnings projections uh, through the back half of this year and into next year. That's Thank you. So that moves us wanted to go next. So um, Wall Street estimates for corporate earnings are more optimistic than JP Morgan would necessarily think. Yep. And that brings us to the Federal Reserve, which we've already talked about a bit. And I talked about this soft landing, the idea that they're going to strike the kid back between reigning in inflation and not doing undue harm. But there's a risk, and I think it's not a small risk, that the Fed ends up being too aggressive and does do more damage than is needed. It's a tricky proposition. I wouldn't want to be a Federal Reserve governor, or maybe I would on the pay and prestige front, but um, they got a tough go of it, right? So can you talk a little bit about JP Morgan's view on the risk of the Fed um, being too aggressive? Sure. Um, if we could jump to slide 36 uh, in, the, in the deck here. Um, so the Fed has come out, they've already hiked interest rates to five and five to five and a quarter percent. Um, they have, uh, they paused at their last meeting. Uh, they said they wanted to assess the amount of tightening that they've already done and how that's impacting the economy. Uh, but it was a, what we would call a hawkish pause or hawkish skip, I would say, meaning that they plan to uh, pause, not hike rates in June, uh, but they are gearing up potentially to hike rates again in July. Uh, they've also highlighted that they potentially see two more rate increases 
over the course of this year and and, and maybe embracing this uh, pause, hike, pause, hype uh, cadence in which, again, they'll hike in July after pausing in June. Um, they'll then pause in September and then hike again in November. That's sort of what they've highlighted uh, to, to, to the market. Um, now, the dark blue diamonds to the far right-hand side of this chart shows exactly what the Fed is signaling. They're signaling, again, those two more hikes over the course of this year, but then they're anticipating cutting rates four times next year, and then another six times uh, in, in, in 2025. So again, gradually reducing uh, 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 rates. Now, I'll give you all a very tangible example of the challenges and how higher rates weighs uh, on the consumer. Um, I moved to DC uh, in early 2021. Um, I was able to lease uh, my car, uh, three-year car payment for uh, about 400 bucks a, a month. Um, so due uh, April of, of next year, uh, I'm going to be uh, in the market again to uh, you know, either lease the same car for another three years or again, back in the market. Um, I mentioned my lease payments now are 400 bucks. Where lease rates are at today and where car prices are at today, um, that same car uh, that was now that's now 400 bucks would jump up to about a, a $750 payment. Um, and so you can see how aggressive rate increases uh, directly are going to start to impact, you know, the consumer, you know, again, by things like car payments, um, by the APRs that we paid on, we pay on credit cards. And so the Fed continue to be aggressive in raising rates. Uh, that is what potentially, uh, uh, again, sort of tips the economy into recession, weighs on consumer spending, um, right, because uh, it, 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 it increases uh, the cost, right, of, of, of living, uh, the cost uh, of credit, uh, it increased the businesses cost of, of doing business. Uh, in July of 2020, a short-term business loan uh, was about 4%. You think about small businesses having to tap those lines of credit. Uh, last month, that number was 8.5%. So now credit uh, becoming twice as costly for, for, for small businesses across the economy. So, you know, you paint all this picture, higher weight, higher rates weigh on overall economic activity. And the more aggressive that the Fed tries to be with raising interest rates, um, the, the greater the risk is. Uh, that they cause a, a deeper contraction uh, in the economy. And, and would you agree with my assessment that they really have, they're in a tricky position now with, you know, given the, um, um, the executive branches, um, prescriptions combined with the unusual circumstances in this post-pandemic economy that we find ourselves in. It, and it's always difficult being, a Fed governor and being the, the chairman of the Fed like Jer Jerome Powell is now, but it seems like they have a particularly difficult decision-making um, pattern to try and deal with, no? No, uh, absolutely. They're, they're walking a tightrope um, and they, they've got two mandates. Their two mandates are maximum employment, which we've talked about. You could argue we're, we're there, the unemployment rate at 3.7%. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and uh, price stability by way of inflation. Uh, and we've talked about how the headline inflation number uh, is going to come down whether the Fed is active or not. I mean, a lot of that headline inflation coming down is, again, as we've talked about being driven by energy and food, which interest rate policy doesn't have a huge impact on. Um, but the stickiness in the measure that they're focused on, again, we've talked about, they may be shooting themselves in the foot uh, by continuing to raise rates. And so 
uh, where they would need where, where that inflation pressure could come down more meaningfully is if they cause that pain in the economy, that pain in the labor market, that pain in demand on both consumers and businesses under the weight of higher rates, that helping to get inflation down. I, I, I think the committee um, is, is, is almost uh, kind of struck or, 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 or just, just obsessed with this 1980s inflation, Volcker inflation. Yeah. Uh, when inflation shot up, uh, they were a little bit cautious with, with raising rates um, and they paused and then inflation came down a little bit, but then it shot up again. Um, and, 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 and that, that, that dented the Fed's credibility as an inflation fighting entity. Uh, and I don't think, I think they're very much focused on their credibility as an inflation fighting entity today as well. Uh, and, and, and they're prioritizing the inflation numbers. They're, they're prioritizing that year-over-year -year CPI run rate. Um, and, and, and by, by, by prioritizing that, um, they're, they're, they, they, they run the risk of, of raising rates too, too much and, and causing more pain in the economy. So it's, it's, it's again, I wouldn't be one of, I, I'm with you, Chris. I wouldn't want to be a Fed governor uh, conducting policy today. Yeah, I don't know how much they, they must make a bit of money or maybe not. Is it more like public service kind of thing? I think the Fed official salaries are are public, publicly available. I think uh, Powell makes something like 180000 a year. Oh, that's not, I mean, in the world of finance, I mean, that's a good living, I understand. But in the world of finance, that's that's not. But then, you know, he'll write a book and do the speaking tour and uh, all of that good stuff when the time comes. I wanted to ask you a little bit, and I don't know if, um, I don't recall if there's a slide on this, but it still seems to me, let's just talk about, you know, um, just sentiment a little bit. You know, as of this recording, uh, the markets enjoyed a nice rebound. Um, the fourth quarter of last year, stock market averages, let's use the S&P 500, you know, staged a nice rebound after three really difficult quarters to start last year. And then this year has been good, um, very strong, including the month of June, um, possibly in reaction to the debt ceiling deal being struck. But it seems to me, despite the markets having a rebound, I don't know what adjective you'd want to put in front of that, it still seems like people are pessimistic and there's a lack of confidence. It seems like the American public are still kind of in a bit of a sour mood. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays into the things we've discussed, inflation, the Fed? Uh, the job market, consumer spending. Uh, it seems to be a part of this, but it's difficult to kind of sort it out because I've been joking, Jordan, that, you know, you you go to a nice five-star restaurant and, and I like to spend money on a nice meal out and, and you observe a table next door and it might be, let's say, three couples and they're spending a lot of money on food and wine and, you know, all these different courses and yet they're complaining about inflation and the state of the economy. Yeah, it's it's it, it's really interesting. And you almost teed up one of my favorite slides uh, in, in this deck. It's it's slide 27. Um, and it, it looks that's, that's because I'm a great host. <laughs> <laughs> or it was just an accident, but either way. And uh and and so so what it effectively shows, and we've got a nice decent amount of, of history going back. It shows consumer confidence. Um, one of the, the, the most well-tracked measures of consumer sentiment and confidence, um, uh, University of Michigan's uh, consumer sentiment. And what's interesting is what we've done is we've highlighted both peaks 
So when when consumers are almost euphoric, they're very, very confident and excited about the job market, um, you know, prices throughout the economy, their ability to get a job, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've highlighted the peaks in consumer confidence, but we also highlighted the troughs uh, in consumer confidence. And what's interesting, if you look at the most recent uh, uh, sort of uh, trend, uh, consumer confidence really troughed in the middle of last year. And that was when, remember, gas prices were, you know, over $4 a gallon. Um, you know, we were now, you know, roughly three, four months into uh, Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, you know, and, and it just, there was just a lot of uncertainty. Right. Um, and that was also peak inflation, right? I mean, unless something dramatically changes, that was also peak inflation June of last year. Yep, exactly. And so, um, what you saw a bottoming out in consumer confidence of last year, and then had started to recover a bit, but we're nowhere near sort of that long run average level of consumer confidence. Um, looking at this index, about 85 right now, consumer confidence is about 64.4. Um, so we, we've recovered a little bit, but certainly not back to sort of average and consumers aren't feeling great. Um, but I think part of what that, what part of what's allowed that improvement is gas prices, inflation, have broadly come down over the last 12 months. Um, you, 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 I, I, I don't want to say you know stability in, in Russia, Ukraine, but uh, investors have, uh, consumers have gotten sort of used to um, yes. sort of the, the state of affairs uh, in, in in Eastern Europe. Uh, and then lastly, the labor market, as we talked about, remains tight. You know, I think we're still in an environment in uh, if you want a job, you can go out and find and, and get a job, and that generally leads to uh, a, a, an improvement in, in broader consumer confidence. But what's interesting is it's almost it almost appears to be that consumer confidence um, is is a contrarian indicator. Now, when I say contrarian, meaning that um, kind of like the Warren Buffett added, uh, you want to buy uh, when 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 everyone is fearful and you want to be greedy um, when 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 others are 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 euphoric. Are euphoric. Um, and so, when consumer confidence troughs, you tend to see pretty strong twelve month performance coming from the from 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 equities. On average, we've looked at troughs in consumer confidence. The subsequent 12-month return has, on average, been about 25% in the market. But if you were to be buying when consumers are feeling great and almost euphoric, so consumer peaks, uh, that average return over the next 12 months is only about 3.5%. Um, so if you were to buy the market when consumers spent, uh, felt really crummy in the middle of last year, you've actually would have benefited from about a 17.5% uh, return uh, by owning equities, uh, when again, when consumers felt really, really bad. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm sorry to step on you. It, you know, it, it kind of dovetail what we've been talking about here at LA Wealth Management with our clients since July kind of time period last year, concept of the wall of that the market has a tendency when confronted with bad news, especially a lot of bad news, which we had a steady diet of the first portion of last year, is can climb the wall of worry and mount a, uh, and mount a rebound and make progress um, as it climbs the, the wall of worry. And that, that seems to dovetail what you just explained with my discussion about the wall of worry and, and that being a cause for optimism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's sort of the, the wall is 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 maybe a little less thicker or maybe a little shorter of a wall. You know, now yeah. you've gotten past the, the debt ceiling. Um, you know, I guess the next sort of uh, uh, area of concern maybe we're going to be into to the election season. 
Um, and so we're going to probably have another 12 months uh, uh, between the end of the year and, and through 2024, you know, politics being back to, 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 to front and center. Um, yes. But, but generally speaking, I think consumer confidence can continue to improve so long as uh, the labor market continues to remain intact. I don't think we'll get to a euphoric sort of position because uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty around the economy more broadly. Uh, but but I, you know, I think, again, consumers can kind of sort of sort of hang in there uh, here. And the other point I'll make related to this is uh, what caught my attention is, is this, um, I don't know if popular is the right word, but this um, survey, right track, wrong track, it basically simple, they poll, ask Americans, do you think the country is on the right track or the wrong track? The most recent um, report on this um, was that only percent of Americans thinks the country is on the right track. So I took note of that both as a citizen, right? I mean, this is, um, we, we're recording this right after the 4th of July. I mean, it's a great country. I love our country. Um, we have issues that need to be dealt with. It's a little upsetting that only 20% of the country thinks that we're on the right track. And I think there's ramifications politically, but I, I'm curious as to if that's a worrisome aspect for the economy and perhaps the markets, or is it maybe contrarian? Because if you could drive that 20% number up to 25 or 30 or 40 over the next stretch, might that translate into better economic performance and help drive markets higher? Um, do you have an opinion on that? Um, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a great question and interesting one to think about. Um, I, I, I'd argue that, you know, to some extent, because consumers broadly, from an economic perspective, there's there's a certain immediacy, right? Uh, in terms yeah. of uh, if I have a job, I'm, I'm getting paid weekly or, or biweekly. Um, I'm I'm still able to spend, right? I'm still able to do the things uh, that I need to do. So a lot of uh, I think what uh, you're hinting at are, are are elements in the background, right? Things that could shift, I'd argue, maybe the political landscape uh, over the next five to 10 years. Um, it, it, it shifts uh, election outcomes. Um, it shifts how the political agenda in which we're, we're going to focus on um, uh, in terms of politicians marketing and looking to get reelected um, uh, and how they, 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 they market to their constituencies. Um, it potentially has impacts on things like the deficit and, and where we're spending uh, as, as a government, uh, particularly when we look at non-defense discretionary spending. Um, and so, you know, all that is, are things that sort of happen in, in the background and I think have longer term uh, implications for things like fiscal policy, um, uh, uh, primarily, primarily fiscal policy. But I think the more immediate uh, dynamic, um, again, is, 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 you know, a healthy labor market. Folks feel like they can, you know, pay their bills and, and potentially then some to, 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 you know, enjoy experiences uh, and services and, and buy stuff. So, um, you know, again, it, it's, it's, while consumers are, are, are still not, don't feel great, um, they're, they're not as sour as they were in, in the middle of, of last year, but they're not as euphoric yeah, as they were uh, prior to the pandemic. Wonderful. Leave it there. Um, Jordan Jackson, global market strategist, JP Morgan. I'm so appreciative you joined me again uh, after us doing a version of this in January. Um, thanks for your time. Uh, I will um, I'll, uh, leave it there, but uh, please thank your uh, associate, Bill Menaggio, for me too, for setting this up. 
Will do. Thanks for having me again, Chris. And uh, uh, let me know if you need me. All right. Good luck the rest of the year. Thanks. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note, the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.